Chapter 26 of The Key to the Riddle, A Story of Huguenot Days by Margaret S. Comrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 A Debtor Released Fully three months had elapsed since the rentre glorious, and much had taken place during that time. How the Vaudois fought in defense of their duke, risking their lives on behalf of a prince who had at last done tardy justice to their loyalty and courage, how in conjunction with Amadeus's troops they drove the French through the defile of La Croix, how they successfully attacked the forts of Saint-Michel and La Torre, and eventually rid the country of the country, are now matters of history. Nor had these months proved uneventful to our friends at Brianza. Not many days after Léon brought the news of Victor Amadeus's reconciliation with his Vaudois subjects, Jules Bressou arrived at Malinot with Pastor François Montu. At the courteous request of Madame de Rohan and her son, and to the unspeakable delight of Azerol, M. Montu consented to take up his residence for the present at the chateau, until he should have somewhat recovered from the effects of the winter's rigorous imprisonment. But not for long could the pastor remain inactive at Castel Brianza. Reinforcements flocked daily to the Vaudois standard, taxing the generalship of Henri Arnoux to the utmost. Moreover, arrangements had to be made for fetching back from Switzerland and Germany the remainder of the Vaudois exiles, including the families of those already in the valleys. Arnoux waited impatiently for the counsel and help of his colleague, and the latter, as soon as he was able, answered his friend's urgent summons to come to him at his headquarters in Torre Pellice. Léon would fain have accompanied his father, but it was impressed upon him that he ought not to leave Malino, where for the present he was sorely needed, not only on account of M. Broussel, whose health still remained feeble, but because of Roussier. Michel was far from well, and Léon was anxious about him. Not that there was any great alteration in the young man's appearance or manner calculated at the first to excite alarm. He himself made light of his ailments, and far from being depressed, his spirits were so much more even than in the old days, that for a time every one but himself and Léon was deceived. But Léon knew that there were nights when Roussier hardly slept for a hacking cough, that he was losing strength and flesh, slowly it is true, but surely, and that the slightest exertion was enough to bring on a fit of distressing exhaustion. Greatly to the relief of the young Vaudois, who soon began to find his powers overtaxed in the endeavour to fulfil the duties of his threefold office of farmer, secretary, and sick nurse, Jules Bressou stepped into the breach by offering to fill the post of handyman to M. Broussel throughout the summer. Only too thankfully was the offer accepted. Nor was it by the farmer and Léon only that this opportune help was welcomed, for as the time went on, and Roussier's nights grew more rather than less trying, the trooper's skill and strength as an attendant proved invaluable to the sufferer, who hardly knew how great his need had been until he found that need supplied by the kind-hearted giant. In other circumstances, it is probable that Michel's condition would sooner have struck Gaston and Azerol, who had both apprehended mischief to the young fellow in consequence of the fatigue and exposure of those two days and nights of toil on their behalf. But Roussier's uniform cheerfulness, the unavoidable absorption of other interests crowding upon the stirring weeks after the rentrée, and their own exceeding happiness, made the two less keen-sighted, perhaps, than they might have been. That summer of 1690 had been to Azerol Montu months of almost unclouded sunshine, in these days she had grown young again. The light had come back to her eyes, the color to her cheeks, the old elasticity to her step, and as she went about the chateau, filling the great old house with the music of her song, she was once more Azerol, the blithe-hearted Azerol la belle de Valles. It is true that one great joy had been perforce postponed. Among the children of the little community of Vaudois exiles in Württemberg, there had broken out in the month of July an epidemic of scarlet fever, and little Stella Montu was one of those who had sickened though happily not seriously, with the dread complaint. Thus both she and her mother were prevented from accompanying their fellow-countrymen, who were hastening from all parts of Switzerland and Germany to rejoin their husbands, fathers, and brothers, anxiously awaiting them in their beloved valleys. 
for the present at least Madame Montu and Azerol must needs possess themselves in patience and await God's time for the reunion to which the heart of mother and child had been looking forward with well-nigh unbearable longing. But Gaston would not allow Azerol to fret. "'Courage, sweetheart,' he had said. "'If the dear mother and the petite are not able to come before the winter sets in, then we, you and I, mummy, will go to Württemberg on our wedding journey.' And at that Azerol had been fain to hide her April face of tears and blushing smiles from her night's too close inspection. To Gaston de Rohan, no less than to Azerol Montu, those months of summer had proved wondrously bright, and that too in spite of the disappointments and anxieties that pressed him hard at times. His injured arm, which had suffered in consequence of the unavoidable strain to which it had been subjected on the night of his escape from the citadel of Pinerolo, slowly regained lost ground, but there the improvement stopped notwithstanding the skill and unwearied efforts of his old friend M. Beau. It was with heartfelt regret that the surgeon found himself compelled at last to break the truth to his patient. "'I fear you will never again be able to wield your sword to such good purpose as at Frankenthal, Monsieur le Capitaine,' he said one day, hiding his sympathy under an extra show of brusqueness. This verdict was to be recognized later on as a blessing in disguise, but at the present juncture it seemed not good but unmitigated evil, and the old surgeon marveled that the brilliant young officer took it so quietly. "'You were not wont to chafe so meekly, monsieur,' he remarked, with a keen side-look at de Rohan. "'I should have expected you to see that this was the occasion for anathematizing stray bullets.' De Rohan smiled. "'I have learnt to see further afield than I was wont to do, monsieur. The religion of—' "'Tion!' hastily interrupted the other, with good-natured roughness. "'It is clear you have not yet learnt to see a pitfall when it yawns at your feet. The less you tell me of your religion, the better for your own sake, mon ami.' And Gaston, smiling again, took the hint. But in the ilex grove, where he and Azerol had wandered together that afternoon, the captain's smile came less readily. Apparently preoccupied, he allowed the conversation to fall chiefly upon Azerol, until she began to tell him of Michel, who had seemed considerably worse on the previous day when she had seen him. Then de Rohan roused himself. With tender regret they talked of Roussier, who had been visibly failing since an attack of hemorrhage some ten days before, and although they did not say it in words it was evident from the tone of their remarks that their hope of the invalid's ultimate recovery was fading fast. By and by the talk drifted into other channels. De Rohan told Azerol of the communication he had just received from Signor Bocelli, who was at present in Paris looking after the affairs of his young client. It was clear from the letter that even the sanguine old advocate was by no means confident of being able to circumvent the schemes of the enemies of the house of de Rohan. There was, moreover, but little abatement of the rigorous measures now in force against the Huguenots, and in the circumstances, therefore, De Rohan's proposal to return to France would be hazardous in the extreme. In the opinion of his friends the step would merely precipitate the impending sentence of excommunication, which would inevitably be followed by the confiscation of Le Rocher de Rohan to the church. "'And so, mummy, when you marry Gaston de Rohan you will be marrying a man crippled in body, crippled also in the fortune he had hoped to give you with his hand.' Checking the quick protest that rose to the girl's lips, he went on, still gravely, "'It is but right that you should know all, Azerol, for truly, it is on your account that the future looks somewhat dark to me. I did not know until lately how seriously my mother had burdened her estates in Piedmont through her munificent gifts to the church. And now there is Christophe to be thought of. Provision must be made for him. Not that I would grudge him aught, or even all, dear little man, but it is of thee I am thinking, sweetheart. I am remembering the cosy nest I had hoped to fit up for my nightingale and dauphine among the beautiful old woods of Le Rocher de Rohan. She interrupted him. Nay, then, Gaston, but is it possible you do not yet understand? There was a moment's hesitation, then blushing pink she went bravely on. Know you not that for your nightingale the humblest of nests with you will be a home in which to sing for very joy of heart? 
He rewarded her for this speech after a fashion that deepened the pink to crimson in her cheeks. But to do these lovers justice, they spent but little of their time together in the interchange of caresses, and soon they had drifted back again to graver talk. "'Azerol,' said Gaston, abruptly breaking a little pause during which he had been studying her face, so changeful in its animation, yet so unchanging in its restfulness. "'You are not the old Azerol.' She looked up, half-startled. "'Nay,' he smiled, "'I should say you are the same, yet different. Life's perplexities were wont to fret you. Do you remember how you were prone to say that you found it so difficult in the riddle of life to trust where you could not trace?' "'Ah, how childish, how presumptuous I was in those days,' she returned penitently. "'Gaston, our Father God has been wondrous patient with me. It must in very deed have seemed to him that his wayward scholar would never master even the alphabet of his lesson of trust. But there is one thing, methinks, that with King David of old I have learned, that, in the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. But for the doubts and perplexities that make life oft-times seem a riddle, truly I should many and many a time have missed the rare sweetness of God's own comforts. But ah, Gaston,' she added humbly, Cert, I am yet but a backwards learner. Nay, then, sweetheart, methinks it is in the same school that the Divine Master has put us all, and it is the same lesson he would teach us all, only from different classrooms. My prison cell at Pinerolo was in very truth a dreary cage for my impatient spirit, until it dawned upon me that my father God had taken me aside into a schoolroom apart with himself, to learn the life lesson I could not so well have mastered elsewhere. Thanks to the kind courtesy of de Quadra, who throughout treated me more like a guest than a prisoner, my personal possessions were most superficially overhauled, and during all those weary months I had a secret source of comfort in the Geneva Bible your people gave me at Württemberg. From its pages the master taught me, Gaston de Rohan, that same lesson of trust. It came to me one day somewhat after this fashion. If God Almighty has entrusted to us who believe the key to that great mystery, God manifest in the flesh, the mystery which to the Jews is but a stumbling-block and to the Greeks foolishness, while to us who are of the faith it is the power and wisdom of God, Surely we may entrust to his keeping the key to the riddle of our little lives. That is good, that is good. I shall remember that, Gaston. The mention of Pinerolo seemed to recall something else to de Rohan. You know, Mummy, I saw a good deal of your people when I was invalided upon their hands in that little Württemberg village, and I could see that, while their position in a reformed German state is without doubt one of safety, it can but rarely be called one of social comfort or equality. One day last winter, when walking the ramparts of the citadel, I had a daydream. In my vision I saw myself selling my estates in Languedoc, in order to buy up land in Württemberg, and found a settlement of ease and independence for your countrymen. It was part of my scheme to provide heads of families with grants of land at nominal rents, to live myself among them as feudal landlord and caretaker of their interests, and—here with a little laugh Gaston pulled himself up. That was my dream, but I fear me it is likely to prove naught but a dream, or, if it be ever realized, the realization must needs be in miniature. Azerol was fain to clasp her hands like the veriest child. Oh, Gaston, Gaston, how wondrously beautiful would it be were such a dream, even a miniature, to come true! Only—here a sudden remembrance came to her—there is Madame your mother. I have thought of that. I believe she would come with us to Germany. Moreover, it would be good for the estate here. Brianza in competent hands would soon free itself from burdens. It would be good also for Christophe. There is his education in a Protestant state to be considered. But hark, what is that? They both listened intently, and the sound Gaston had heard was repeated, a long, clear whistle coming from the direction of the chateau. Only Brissou can whistle like that, said de Rohan, springing to his feet. Let us go back. It may be he is calling for us. They hurried through the plantation, and emerging into the open were at once described by Jules, 
who stood on the high terrace overlooking the park, across which the two were now rapidly making their way. He came quickly to meet them, and as soon as she saw his face, Azarol, with sudden apprehension, exclaimed, "'Is it Michel?' The trooper bowed his head. "'He is sinking fast, Mademoiselle. Come, he asks for you.' In the avenue, horses ready saddled stood waiting, and mounting, the three rode off toward Malino. Only once Azarol spoke. "'Is there nothing that can be done, Jules?' He shook his head, and without another word they rode on, never drawing bridle until they reached the farm. Gaston lifted Azarol down from her horse, and hand in hand, followed by Brissou, they went up to the summer parlour where Michel lay on the couch by the open window. The farmer, Madame Justine, Léon, they were all there, but the eyes of the dying man, turning eagerly at the sound of coming footsteps, brightened at sight of the two who softly entered and came towards him. Kneeling by the side of the sofa, Azarel took the thin hand in hers. "'Dear Michel,' she murmured, her voice unsteady. "'Mademoiselle, it was kind of you to come, to say adieu,' he said, with pauses between the whispered words. "'And it is adieu.' But this was too much for the girl. "'Michel, Michel, you are not going to leave us. Oh, Michel, you have given your life for ours.' Her voice ended in a choking sob. A smile flickered on his lips, and a momentary strength came to him. "'You say that too, mademoiselle,' he murmured, a ring of triumph in his tone. "'Léon, he said the same. I asked him if it would help, even a very little, to atone for—for the past. He said it could not, but—' His voice failed, and signing to Léon, he whispered, "'Tell them.' "'I told him there was no need,' huskily obeyed Léon. I told him the past had been fully atoned for by our Lord Jesus Christ, himself the great and only atonement for his past, I, and for ours, as full of debts as his. Michel struggled to speak once more. He frankly forgave, were the only words they caught. But I told him, went on Léon, that down here there was for Michel Roussier the love of grateful hearts, and up yonder the well-done of the Master. There was a long silence broken only by the weeping of Madame Justine. "'Hippolyte,' she whispered, "'are we sinning not to send for Father Mathieu?' Michel looked up. "'No need,' he panted. "'Wonderful, wonderful,' he murmured, looking full at Azarol, his voice scarcely audible. "'My Saviour Christ, frankly forgave. The debt's all paid. Mademoiselle, I am content.' Slowly his gaze wandered from one to the other of the group gathered round him. It rested lovingly for a moment on each sorrowful face, then returning to Azarol, lingered in a last look of recognition. There was an instant's flutter of the failing breath, a quick sigh, and Michel Roussier, his debts all paid, was at peace. "'What is the matter?' asked a childish voice, breaking the solemn hush of the death chamber. The group about the couch started, and turned to find it was little Christophe who stood at the open door, in one hand a lovely white rosebud in the other his hat, which he had hurriedly taken off. Nearly every day of late the little fellow went out for a ride, would come round by Malino to ask for his sick friend, and it was seldom that he failed to bring a little offering in token of love and sympathy. Something in the look of that little band of mourners, combined with the strange quiet of the room, awed and almost frightened the boy, but when he glanced at the couch his fears all vanished, and without a tremor he approached. Christophe had never seen death before. He did not recognize it now. That still pale face on the pillow, with its expression of settled peace, what a contrast to that other face, worn and suffering, which Christophe had grown sorrowfully accustomed to see during these past weeks. "'What is the matter, poor Michel?' had been the child's constant and pitying question, 
and ever the patient answer would come to cheer the anxious little inquirer. There is not the matter, Monsieur Christophe, not but that I am tired, tired. One long loving look the boy took, a glad smile on his rosy lips, then gently slipping the pure white bud within the wasted hand outside the coverlet, he held up a warning finger, for sobs were breaking again from poor Madame Justine. Hush, hush, he whispered, walking on tiptoe across the room to her. We must not make a noise to wake Michel. I think our Father God himself is resting him. End of chapter 26